What's up, guys? Pastor Josh here, Agape Center Ministries. So you are about to listen to the sermon that was preached um, today at Agape Center based on love. And one of the things that I, I did not cover um, very deeply in this message was the component of self-seeking love. And it was one that I really wanted to elaborate on, and I'll make a point to elaborate more on next week as we go into chapter 14. But this component of self-seeking love is one that I think that we all have been guilty of. And what I mean by that is, is when the motive of our hearts when we do things, are we doing it with a sense of self or are we doing it with the sense of the other? Is our motive the other person or is our motive ourselves? And we see this practiced a lot in the world today when we put our hands up to certain things like sin, when we put our hands up to certain things like um, you know, confrontation in the church because we just want to love everyone and everyone can do what they want to do. They can be responsible for what they want to do. We accept everything, accept everyone. And we see this practice going on in the church today. And this is what I would deem as a self-seeking love. We are more concerned about how we are to other people and how people perceive us more so than we are about giving God glory and ministering to people and keeping them on paths of righteousness and, and confrontation, which leads to a place, I believe, of conviction and a place of confession as well. So true love to me, biblical love, love that's not self-seeking, is love that has confrontation. And I will elaborate on that a little bit more in the message but I really wanted to make sure that you guys thought about that. Think about it to an extent as yourself when it comes to you and how you practice love to other people. Yes, it's okay to be concerned for a person because you're just simply concerned. But does your concern come more so about your comfortability or more so about their sanctification, more so about their eternity? That is a place where Paul's wanting us to park our hearts at. So self-seeking love covers a multitude of different variations, but it's a, a form of love that the world highly promotes and one that I really feel like, like I said, when it comes to ministries and us trying to appease to people and stuff like that, leads us to not a place of leading people um, to the gospel or not a place of us you know, carrying the burden of another person in the sanctification process um, linked up with other brothers and sisters but it becomes more so of a touting or maybe an idolization of certain things like pastors and ministries and stuff like that because you're, you're more concerned about them being drawn to that to make you feel better as opposed to them being drawn to the Lord for their um, goodness and for their sanctification. Make sense? So once again, hopefully that makes sense. I, I hope that this message is um, fruitful for you. I hope it brings a sense of conviction as it does for me, even being the pastor, reading and preaching it, the word ministered to me as well. Um, I just pray that you receive it well as well. Thank you for listening. God bless. All right. So, a little bit of a recap before we go into this chapter. And... My wife, it was cool, I got to give her kind of a, a mini version of the sermon today since she knew she wasn't going to be coming to church. Um, so she had asked me, she's like, you know, do you mind going through and kind of expounding and explaining on what you're going to be talking about? And then when we got done, it's always a good thing when my wife looks at me and she goes, you're going to remember to record this, right? And I said, yes. And she's like, please remember to record it because we wanted to make sure that it gets out to people that couldn't make it because it's a message that... It's very convicting, and it's one that isn't convicting in a sense to, to weigh you down with a sense of shame, but it is convicting in a way to make you guys stop and evaluate yourselves as Christians, and it's this word love. 
And I know that we've talked about in the past and spoke about that love is, is laid out in the Bible. The identity, the, the nerdy pastor word I like to use, the hermeneutics of love is much different in the Bible as opposed to what the world likes to say that love is. And when we, are, when we were just going through chapter 12 and I was breaking down for you guys, when you're looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and you're looking at is these, are these gifts being done in a Christ-centered fashion, are they done in sacrificial love and are they done to edify the church these are kind of three things that we can look at in regarding and checking the motive of how these gifts were being utilized and how they were being exercised and the church at corinth we can all say and agree they had the gifts of the holy spirit present the problem was was that they were misusing and abusing these gifts they were being used in ways to promote self there were some practices and things going on obviously that paul had to address because he was trying to sit there and say that if people are truly of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't be able to say this, and those who are of the Holy Spirit would only be able to say this. So obviously there were some practices going on in this church that weren't Christian, that weren't biblical, that weren't godly, that weren't Holy Spirit-led or Spirit-filled. And we always have to acknowledge that and see that in the church today, and it's one of the things that I want to make sure as a pastor that I do with you guys as well, because I do believe that there are gifts that are touted and broadcast and put out there to be the gifts that we all should be seeking and showing because there's this outwardness to them that in a sense promotes self. And Paul, as we just got done going through chapter 12, is showing that there's no gift that's better than another. And he uses the body as kind of an analogy for that too, that these gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. They're given by a good God. And the reason why these gifts, regardless of whichever one you've been given, are good is because they come from the good God. And we shouldn't sit there and look and go, well, this is a gift that I want, or this is a gift that I want, or look what Chris is gifted with, look what Valerie's gifted with. Each and every one of you as Christians, professed Christians, are all gifted individual ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. If you are a professed Christian, you have been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. And those gifts, once again, are to, are to be used Christ-centered fashion, sacrificial love, and to edify and build up the church. Plain and simple. So Paul, there's no, there's no coincidence here that this love chapter is kind of sandwiched in between that teaching and then what we will go into next week in 14 about the intelligibility of worship and how there seems to be this misuse and how things are going on and more of an identity of the abuse of these gifts. In particular, tongues and prophecy. This is not a coincidence that Paul is speaking about primarily the gift of tongues being abused or even the gift of prophecy to an extent. But he wants to sit here and say in chapter 13, guys, you can tell me everything you want about spiritualness, spirituality. You can tell me that you have every gift or this gift under the moon. You can be as outward as possible with these gifts. Chris, you could come in. Dawn, you could come in. John, and you guys, people might look at you and go, man, they are just really spiritual. They are connected to the Lord. Look at these gifts that they're showing. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. And this is the component, the identifier for us as Christians. And my prayer today for you guys when you listen to this is to not sit in your pews and go, I suck being a Christian. 
Like, I'm horrible at this. That's not what I'm asking for you guys to do. What I'm asking for you guys to do is to evaluate your hearts while listening to this because this is the purpose of God's Word in our lives today. This isn't about hearing Scripture and then sitting there and going, well, I fail at that, I fail at that, I fail at that, and then leaving here feeling like there's nothing about you that has any value in the kingdom. That's a devil's lie. Where I want to test and challenge you guys is, is to where are your hearts pointing at? Where are your affections pointing? Do you have a heart that's a repentful heart? Do you have a heart that's willing to stop and go, I fall short of that? And to know that you're surrounded by other brothers and sisters in this body that can look at you as well and smile and go, I fall short of that too. But I repent in recognition of that and I go to the Lord for forgiveness. And where I believe our sanctification begins is the more that we are willing to repent, the more, the less our sin becomes more apparent in our lives. Do we live sinless lives? No, there was only one that did that. It says in the book of John, I believe, that he says, it's not that I want you to sin. I don't want you to sin. But if you do, you have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And in 1 John 1, 9, it says that God's faithful in forgiving us if we confess our sins. But so often where we stop as Christians is we have laid out in front of us once again these elements of love that we're going to unpack and dig deep into. And we stop and go, I'm not good at doing that. Or the other issue is, is we start to think about everyone else around us who's not good at doing that. And I, as your pastor, in love, stand up here and say that as I read these to you and we go through this message, if other people pop in your mind before your, your heart and your ways pop in your mind, out of love I say this to you, you're the problem. You're the problem. If all you think about is co-workers, family members, friends, and all that that say that they're Christian and they don't do these things, if that's all you can think about before you think about yourself, the issue has been spotted. This is where, once again, where does the heart err to? Does it err to Christ? Does it, does it yearn for Christ? Does it sit there and know that, yes, this is the hole that you've dug me out of, Lord. You've breathed life into this dead body. And it's in that that I know that I need to go to you for that forgiveness. It's in that truth that I know that this is how I need to be to other people. Because I'm going to tell you right now, church, the world does not talk about love in the way that the Bible does. It does not. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more as well as we go through and what I mean by that too. So, we're going to start off here in chapter 13. And at the end of, of this, this sermon, I am going to give you guys time to sit in your pews and pray to the Lord for forgiveness. To repent. And it would be easy for you guys to just sit there and get up and leave when we're done. It's a beautiful day out, right? There's things you can do and all that. And I'm, I'm not going to keep you here for two hours, even though I would love to. But for a heart check for yourself when we get through this, you guys are going to stop and go, I fall short of this. And I stand up here as your pastor to let you guys know, guess what? I do at times too. So I'm not just standing up here saying this to you 
to belittle you, to make you feel shame. God's word ministers to me as well. And when I'm speaking this to my wife this morning, she's like, yeah, every time I read through this and you're saying this, she's like, I just stop and I go, I, I feel like I'm just fit. And I said, Jelaine, where does your heart go to then in the midst of that? Does it go to the Lord and crying out, forgive me, forgive me. It's in that that our sanctification process just continues on. And knowing and understanding truly, church, how much we need Jesus Christ in every day of our life. This isn't a one and done faith. This isn't about getting people to just simply say yes to Jesus Christ. This is about living the yes as Christians. And so easily we can just attest to a person's faithfulness in Christ by how high they jump when they say yes, right? Man, Linda, when she gave her life to the Lord, she jumped for joy. And we're like, man, she's going to... But we read in the parable of the sower, right? Jesus says the seed goes on the hard path. And even in the seed, when it's on the hard path, that it actually starts to develop some greenery to it, right? There's actually some stuff coming up from the ground. But it's the only parable that Jesus stops and he sits down with his disciples and actually explains to them what the parable means. And do you guys know the primary purpose of a parable is this? It's to actually elicit a response from you guys. It's actually to get you guys to listen to it, be able to relate to it because it's in relation to everyday life. And these people back then knew what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about chucking seeds. They knew all about that so they could make that relation. But when Jesus explains this to his followers, because we'll even read and know as it says in Isaiah that many people, they have eyes but they don't see. Many people have ears but they don't hear. There's only a select few that are really going to pick up what Jesus Christ was putting down. And Jesus says in explanation of this parable that the seed is the word. And at the first sign of adversity, the evil one comes and does what? Snatches the word away. So I have learned as a pastor in five years that there are a lot of people that can jump six foot high when they say yes. But there's only that select few that actually choose to live the yes out in their life. And I can't stand up here and just make it about you guys saying yes. Yes, it's a great thing when you guys choose to do so. But there's a living out the yes component. The fruitfulness of the life. The love that's present. The spirit of God that's present in the individual's life. It's not about your outward giftedness. Once again, some of you guys are pinky toes, as I said last week. And that's okay. Why? Because God made me that pinky toe. And I bask in that glory every day. So, chapter 13. You guys notice here I have this Bible instead of my NIV. And I'm going to tell you why. I am kind of a word nerd. I do like to make sure that when I preach to you guys the message that I try to find the text that seems to hold more true to the original Greek. Okay? I do. And I know that there are, there are King James versions that, or the King James version does that in a lot of situations. However, in studying this chapter and even looking at what the King James version is saying and looking at what the Greek's trying to say, I wasn't comfortable with the NIV and I'm going to explain to you guys why. Does the NIV contradict anything? It does not. It just does not give you guys the transparency of what's trying to be spoken about, I believe. Okay, I primarily preach out of the NIV. I, I study out of the ESV, the KJV, and all that stuff, and I try to package that up 
and bring it to you guys. So many of the times, even though I have the NIV up here on the lectern, I try to make sure though that when I unpack and preach to you guys, that you have an understanding of what's being said. Even if I have to kind of go away from what the text is saying in the NIV to hold true to what the original text is saying. So I'll give you guys a primary example right out the gate. If I speak in the, how many of you guys have languages? Don, Rick, how many of you guys have tongues? Okay, same word. Okay, so when we say tongues, this is, this is Paul right out the gate. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. What Paul is sitting here saying is, is that if Nikki or Chris or Brenda, if they have the ability to be able to speak the language of every man on earth, or they have the ability to speak these angelic spiritual languages as well, okay, they have just been gifted with that. Outwardly, they just let everyone know. We see them, we listen to them, we're like, oh my gosh, like, listen, like, Nikki knows the Greek, she knows Russian, she knows German, she knows, oh my gosh, Chris is speaking this, this beautiful angelic utterance and all this stuff. Paul is sitting here saying, and there's a, there's a contextual reason why he says a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Back in the church in Corinth, there were these spiritual groups that used to believe that if they would pound on gongs or cymbals, that it would, in a sense, usher a connection to this deity or God that they were trying to connect with. As I'm explaining this to my wife this morning, she just looks at me and she goes, oh my gosh, we do that in the church today, don't we? I say, we do. We sit there and think that if we outwardly do this stuff with our mouths, and it's, it's connecting us more and more to God. But Paul's sitting here saying that if we're doing this, this is all that we really are because if we lack love, there's no point in doing what we're doing. So, Nikki, it doesn't matter how many different dialects of, of Mandarin you can speak or Chris, how beautiful these utterances you speak. If you guys don't have love as the motive in what you're doing, Christ-centered, sacrificial edification of the church, it means nothing. Nothing. Because it's all about you. And this is what Paul is trying to emphasize here. He's wanting to say this to the church. And if I have prophetic powers, now prophetic here, I want you guys to understand. We do hear about, my wife wanted to make sure that I broke this down to you because she says, Josh, when you use these words, people are going to be confused. And I go, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but I will explain it to them. We have foretelling and foretelling prophecy. Okay? Foretelling prophecy was what you would see in the Old Testament. Okay, so if Dave was a prophet, the Old Testament, Dave would let us know that it was going that that our homes would be destroyed in the month of May, on the fifteenth day. Forthtelling prophecy is more of a proclamation of God's truth and word. So let's say John is walking around and he's among some people in fellowship, and he comes across an individual, and the Holy Spirit lays on him a word from this book to speak to this individual. He's foretelling, he's proclaiming something. Now, we do read about foretelling prophets in the New Testament. Agabus, in the book of Acts, foretold, right, a famine that was going to come. But when you look at this word prophecy in the Greek, it is basically speaking about one's ability to proclaim the word of God, okay? Being able to just out the gate say a scripture or a passage, being able to, in the midst of fellowship or evangelism, whatever, being able to just use a word for the God to foretell it, to speak it over somebody. Paul is saying right here that if I have prophetic powers, 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So maybe we can even use this in discernment of spirits, right? We spoke of that as a gift as well. You have all these things going on. And if I have all the faith as to remove mountains, some of your Bibles probably say to move mountains, but we can all attest that it's basically speaking about moving a mountain. But do not have love, I am nothing. And what Paul is saying here when he's giving the identity of a faith that moves mountains, he's wanting to speak about the identity of one's faith. How many of you have heard that term? Man, Dawn, she's just got a faith that moves mountains. We're giving an identity to the faith of Dawn, and this could encompass a lot of things. Maybe Dawn's spirituality, how much she speaks in tongues, how energetic she feels, maybe the ministry and stuff that she's a part of, and going out and doing things for the poor. All of this, right? It's just a faith that moves mountains. Man, she makes decisions and stuff, doesn't even sway away from it. She just believes that God is going to do what God does. Man, I want a faith like that. Paul's sitting here saying that, once again, to go back to the parable of the sower, you can have a faith like that. You can actually have a ministry that has all these miraculous things taking place in it, as we read in the book of Matthew, that things will come in the end times, there'll be false teachers and prophets, things of light will come, but it's really not light, it's demonic. We can have miracles taking place in the church, all of that. But if there's no love... There's nothing. And where the church can easily be deceived is if you guys think that the Holy Spirit and God only work in the business of miracles, you're mistaken. The devil works in the game of miracles as well. He loves to perceive himself as light. He loves to perceive himself in an outward fashion where when you see it from the optics, he likes to look pleasing to you just like it was back in the garden. Right? The fruit was pleasing to the eye. And this temptation, this uncovering of our motive begins to take place. I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may, I may boast, so if I do all these things to simply even stop and go, look at what I'm doing in my heart. Look at the things that I've done. I'm your pastor. I, I live in a poor fashion or, or I don't make much money. All of that. If I'm just simply doing that with the motive to boast, I have nothing. Now, I want you guys to understand this because many of you have heard in the world that it is this sign of how do you show you love someone? By what you're doing outwardly. But Jesus always checked the heart of the situation. Remember his address and the things he spoke to to the Pharisees? They were good at showing stuff, doing things. In the book of Revelation, we read, I see your good deeds. Outwardly, you're alive, but inside, you're dead. This is Jesus speaking to the church. And what, he, what Paul is wanting to emphasize, this isn't new words that Paul is giving us. This is just an elaboration or a connection to what's already been spoken about in the Scriptures. That Dawn, that Trent, if you do these things outwardly, but your inward motive is to just simply look good to people, it doesn't matter the things that you do. It doesn't matter how much you give to the poor. It doesn't matter 
what you're putting your body up to to maybe struggle or suffer, if you're doing it with a motive of self, of pride, which is the biggest killer of the church, it is the biggest poison that runs itself through the church is pride. It is what the devil operates on. It's what our flesh is attracted to. If you do all these things and you do it with no love, you gain nothing. You have nothing. Verse 4 here, we, we, we've heard that this, is, this, this book, this chapter, is a lot of times used in weddings. And I'm here to tell you guys that this is not about a wedding. This is, and I'm, I'm going to stand up here and be honest with you. I, I've used this when I first became a pastor in weddings. And the more that I learn and the more that I understand is a misuse of the text here. This is not about the love that you have for your wife or a spouse or whatever. This isn't. This is about the love that we are called as Christians to not only, here's, here's the convicting part. I'm going to start poking you now a little bit. It's going to get a little bit harder as I go on. It's not just about how we love each other as the church, but guess what else? It's also about how we show love to other people as well. To the world. Oh, that's convicting. Right? Because how easy is it to show love to those who love us? Who believe like us? But, I'm going to tell you this. This love is not a compromising love. This love does not call for you to be a doormat. Jesus, when people tell me love like Christ, it's a hard thing to do. You know why? Because Jesus loved, but he loved with a standard in place. He loved from a foundation and a premise in which that love was broadcasted. Jesus dined with sinners. Do you think Jesus, in the midst of dining with sinners, lived like the sinner did? He did not. He was the light and the salt in the midst of that, which is not easy, which it's where we are told in the Bible will put us in a place of even possibly being hated by the world for being like that. So when we go into this component of love, and I read this to you guys, it's easy for us to go, well, of course that's not love, Pastor Josh. But I'm sitting here to tell you that if you do these things and practice these things, this is where at the end of service I ask that you pray to the Lord and repent. If this is something maybe that you even practice in your everyday life, I ask you, speaking, as Paul says, to wise people, professed Christians, not the world, I am not concerned about what the world does. And what I mean by that is, is I'm not concerned about how the world loves to an extent to where I'm going to hold them to that standard. The world's version of love, and we're going to go into it, is very self-seeking. The world's love is, once again, as I said last week, Linda, you do you and I'll do me. And churches promote this kind of love. I, I, I'll keep my hands clean from this. I'm going to stand back and let you live the way that you live because in all actuality, I just don't want to confront it. And I sit there and believe that biblical love, true biblical love, involves confrontation. Worldly love avoids it. And where we convince people that worldly love is the way to go is we go, well, at least we're not confronting. There's nothing wrong with confronting a person that you know in your wisdom as a Christian is on a path of destruction. How many of you have kids or know people that have kids that never discipline their kids or approach their kids about anything? Would you say that that's love? 
And what does their kid do? They live like heathens. But the parent justifies it in their own right, self-seeking their own peace in their own interest. But they push it off and say, well, I'm showing them love. The world does this all the time. Who am I to judge? Are you a Christian? There's a way to judge righteously. We talked about that, about removing the plank from your eye to properly remove the salt. Christ calls for you to do that. But there's a right way of doing it. Love is patient. This is not the kind of patience to where if John and Cherry, I hired them to come in and paint the walls and they had to stand there and wait for the paint to dry. That's not that kind of patience. I'm talking about like a suffering kind of patience. Like a bear a burden kind of patience with a person. Right? Like that's a, that's a biblical patience. Love is kind. Oh, that's a word that we use loose and fast a lot as well. This word kind here is being used in a manner and a way that is speaking about the identity of a response and not a reaction. And what I mean by that is, is kindness holds its truest identity when it's in the face of opposition. How do you guys deal or handle people that are different than you, that think different than you? And once again, I'm not talking about conforming, not one bit. What I'm talking about is, is are you reacting to the way that they are in a sense that is unbiblical and ungodly, rude, mean, snarky, or are you reacting in a disciplined, calm, patient manner? You guys understand that you don't need to be a turd in your language to actually be loving and get your point across. It's the truth of life. I had to learn that. Like, I actually don't have to be a jerk to stand for something. Simply by standing and not budging can rub people the wrong way in itself. I don't need to add more sauce to this taco, as I like to say. So by being kind, how do you respond to those who maybe just can't relate to? It's easy to be kind to people that are like you. I heard a pastor once say, and I love it, you're not who you are when everything is good and you're around those who are like you. You are who you truly are when you're irritated, tired, and frustrated. You want to get an idea of a person? Find out how they are when they're around people they don't like. I tell my kids all the time, you know what the judge of character is? The judge of character is, is how do you treat people you think you don't need? This is a great way for God's word. His word is, is it's sharper than a double-edged sword, right? It discerns the things of the heart. So when we read these things, and I can see the conviction starting to set in, it's a beautiful thing because this is how we continue on and grow. Oh my gosh, at church and at the gathering today, Pastor Josh actually put some stuff on my plate to repent from. The worst place you could be as a Christian is to go, I'm good. I don't need to repent of anything. It's that person over there. Remember, we did communion a couple weeks ago. You guys understand the power in that. Examine your own heart in this. Trust me, as I've had to examine mine. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. I don't stand up here as a, as a pastor, and Christians can do this. Man, I wish I had that church. I wish I knew the Bible like Josh knew the Bible. I wish I had a voice like this person. I wish I had this person's home. I wish I had that person's job. That's not love. We're not called to envy. 
And sometimes in the midst of our envy, we get confused in thinking that this is what God would really want for us, right? Because where I'm at, I'm not content. Remember that beautiful passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? That's a passage of contentment. You as a Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have the ability to be content in every situation that you're in in life. Rich, poor, hungry, well-fed. That's your in as a Christian. The world doesn't know that. The world's going to teach you, Trent, you need to go after this and strive this because this is what God would want for you. Because look at what Dave has. And he's a Christian. This is what he's going to want for you. And it puts you in this path that's not pleasant and doesn't usually lead to peace. So love is not envious. It's not boastful or arrogant. Look at me. Right? Look at my church. Look at my gifts. Look at how much I know the Bible. Remember, this church loved their wisdom. They had all these Greek philosophers going on. I do believe that we have a, another side of the church that knows too much but lives too little. We have people that sit at home reading their Bibles but don't ever go out and live. But they love to sit there and point the finger. John, you're not doing this enough. Sherry, you're not doing this enough because the Bible says it. They sit at home, as I like to say, with their bicycle helmet on, fearful that something's going to happen, and it's just better to just stay away from the world, right? No. Jesus, in his intercessory prayer to God the Father, he asked the Father, protect them, because he knew he had to leave us behind. But there is an advocate coming to help us in this ministry on earth. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Well, let me back up. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. How many of you guys rejoice when something bad happens to someone you don't like? Oh, doesn't that just hurt when I say that? And I'm not, and I'm not even speaking about the world. I'm asking you guys about other brothers and sisters in the faith. If you guys watched my midweek update video... And Grady, I know you already had to listen to this. I preached to Grady a little bit this morning. Paul had a pretty good idea of the Roman soldiers. And he uses the analogy of our armor of God. And the shields that were used by the Roman soldiers were two feet wide and about four feet tall. And on the side of these shields, there were little, like, circles, right? Eyes. And on the other side, there were these hooks. So what they would do is, is they would go, and I'd have Dave and John and Trent on each side. What would we do? We would clasp shields together, and we became this impenetrable unit. And then we would have some people like Rick or, or, or even Chris. They would stand up above us, and they would put their shields over us, and they referred to this as a turtle maneuver because then arrows coming down couldn't hit us. But what we've done today in the church is, is we've removed these shields, we've unhinged, which that's bad enough in itself because now we're no longer impenetrable. Now we're just kind of doing our own thing. But no longer do we even have the shield in front of us because now Dave, myself, and Trent, we, we have to put the shields behind us to stop ourselves from getting shot in the butt by fellow Christians. Leaving our front side completely vulnerable and open to the ways of the enemy. Christians pick on each other more than the world ever could. I believe that. I hear the stories. Guess what? Five years of pastor. Oh my gosh, the stories that come through this church are amazing to me. 
And I do my best to go through the Bible and go, which verse or passage says that you're supposed to do that to a brother or sister in the faith? Like, oh my gosh, like, are you serious? And we struggle with this. So this is love that's not just called to be displayed to the world, but also to the church, to each other. And as I'm going to convict you guys further down, you'll see that love, this gift that we've been given, is the identifier to not only each other, but the world on who God is. But once again, to go back, and I'll ask the question again so you guys can chew on it. How many of you guys have ever just gotten tickled pink when something bad happens to someone you don't like? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened to John. Like, oh, he got that. And, and we even look back at it too, though, because it says it rejoices in the truth. So, so we, we know that it's in the truth of things that we hold fast to. It's in the truth of things that we, we bask in, and give glory to God in. Not in the transgressions or wrongdoings of a brother and sister. We don't rejoice in the fact that Valerie sinned or Brenda sinned. We don't rejoice in that. We mourn for that. Right? We, we don't sit there and, man, I, because once again, it doesn't keep track of wrongdoings, right? doesn't keep a ledger of the things that's happened to us. So it, how many of you have ever formulated this own ledger in your, your mind about what people have done to you? You just know that this person, I'm, I'm keeping the world out of it. I'm just speaking to wise people, once again, as Paul says. People in the church, Man, this person ticked me off because they did this, 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 and this. And as we hold that ledger and we, we keep that ledger in our minds and our spirits, when something bad happens to that person, that's where we just sit there and go, yes! Like, they finally got what was coming to them. That's not love, church. That's not. If anything, it mimics the kind of love that the world broadcasts. It bears all things. Now, in the Greek, I want you guys to understand what this phrase is saying. And you guys can write this down and refer to 1 Peter 4.8 as well. This word bears all things actually in reference is talking about covers all things. It protects. So in 1 Peter 4.8, we read that, that love covers a multitude of sin. It's the same usage of word in the Greek that's being used here, okay? So it's, it's a covering here. It's a protection of things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. So think about the benefit of the doubt. I want to hope and I want to believe that when these things take place in Trent's life, in Dave's life, in Rick's life, in Nikki's life, I want to give the benefit of the doubt that they're not doing this stuff too in a place that's malicious or bad. If I'm hurt by Dave... If Dave picks on me too much, <laughs> if he picks on me too much and I sit there and I just want to, or Dave does something when he comes into the church and he makes a comment to me, I don't want to be so touchy as a Christian that I automatically assume that he's doing it to be malicious to me. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I want to hope and believe. You <laughs> I want to hope and believe that he's doing it out of a place of love. Amen? Like, that's how I want to be. And we struggle with this. We think that when someone does something to us, even though they sent it, it was received in a certain way, we want to take the way it was received and mark it up in the intent in which it was sent. Right? How many of you have been on both sides of that? 
You went and talked to someone about something and you meant it out of a place of love. That's the line we like to use. I come to you, I love you. My wife does it all the time. It's the licking before the biting, I always say. Babe, I love you, but, it always follows with a but. How many of you guys do that phrase with each other? Okay, so she's softening, she's laying the butter down before the boom, as I like to say. So we do that, but we want to stop and we get so touchy as Christians sometimes that we just simply sit there and go, well, Dawn, her intent was malicious. Right? I mean, she wasn't doing it to me. She was trying to hurt me when she did that. Nikki, you were trying to hurt me when you did that, when you said that. We got to be careful of that, church. Like, to practice it amongst each other is vital, but you're going to get it from the world. That is promised. It says, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This phrase right here, once again, we're going we're gonna to dig deep into this. This endures all things. This means to literally come under and willfully take on the burden of another. You see how that, that phrase has a little bit more of a punch to it now? Like I can say endures all things and leave it at that, but it actually means that you as a Christian, you step under the burden of someone and you willfully take it on to help them move forward and to carry on. We struggle with that as well as a church. Once again, even leaving the world out of it. Some of you know people that are burdened. Do we step back and just go, we're going to let God deal with that? Or do we step in as a representation of God, as another member of this body, and carry that burden with them as well? Love never ends. This phrase here, and I, I want to make a point because I know you guys have heard me elaborate on tongues, and you've heard me elaborate. I don't want you guys to think. There, there are two extreme camps in this. Everything is God and everything is of the devil. And there are people out there that think everything spiritual that takes place in the church is of God. And then there's people that think everything that's spiritual that takes place in the church is of the devil. I'm not in either one of those. I believe that there's a biblical teaching for the gifts. And we're going through it right now as a church. Paul is sitting here saying, and the sensationists, these are the group of people that believe that these gifts are no longer for today. I am not that. And this passage here is abused a lot by those individuals. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. People use that and go, you see, Linda, tongues and prophecy, they're not for today. That is not the context that Paul is speaking about here. He is just making a reference that all gifts will cease except one. All gifts. And my proof of that is, is if we go to the next phrase, what does he say? As for knowledge, it will come to an end. Has knowledge stopped, church? It has not. Paul wants to just make this reference here that there will be a day where all these gifts stop. And he goes on to explain why. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. Who is the complete? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the complete that will come. So that means when Jesus comes back for his own, there is no point, no reason for us to have any of these gifts. Why? Because we know fully now 
And I use this analogy. If you've ever been a weirdo like me in a movie theater and just you look at the movie projector and you're just like, I'm going to look and see, oh, wow, that's a bunch of colors. And so you ever look at that, you'll see it's just a glob of colors. And you turn around and look at the screen, those colors are shooting an image. We have been given God's word, 66 books that is complete for our teaching. God breathed, God inspired. We do not live in the apostolic age. There are no new revelations in this book. God reveals things to us, but it has to align and be in accordance to words that are God-breathed and inspired by people thousands of years ago, church. These were individuals that the Holy Spirit spoke to that were able to put this word down by God. And it is now, do you guys know, we know more about God than Moses ever did? I told my wife that and she looked at me and she's like, I never thought of it that way. You guys actually know more about God than Moses. Why? Because we've been gifted this by God for our teaching and understanding of who he is. We don't worship the letters on here. We worship the God that the letters talk about. But sometimes we fall in love with this too much and we get all caught up in interpretations and translations when this is just simply a means to worship and to love God. But we have to stop and understand and know, though, that in all this being said and done, we will only know so much, and that so much that we know is given to us through this word, and when Jesus Christ comes back, we will then know completely. Aha! That makes sense to me. Linda, we talked about this that one day at church. Oh my gosh, that's what that means, right? Rick, remember when you and I spoke about this and we were kind of going back and forth? We were both wrong. Look at that. Like, this is what he's speaking about here. But in the next verse, in verse 11, he goes on to use an analogy in regards to our spiritual maturity. And I like to believe that when I read this, he's making a reference to churches that are immature spiritually by practicing the things that we just went through and studied. They're all about knowledge. They're all about outward spiritualness. They're all about a certain gift to be shown. It's child's play that Paul is making reference to here. In verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. He says, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, when I spiritually matured as a Christian, I put, I put an end to my childish ways. Guys, I will tell you as a pastor that by my growth and trying to put behind me my childish ways and understanding God's word, it has put me at enmity with brothers and sisters in the faith that I feel like will not let go of their childish ways. And that's just me being up front with you. They won't unhinge from a denominational belief. They won't unhinge from some kind of interpretation of something. Because it's not what God spoke to them or spoke to them through his word. It's what someone said to them years ago from the pulpit. And it was never questioned. I ask you guys every Sunday, go home. Read your Bibles. Study your Bibles. And if you have a question, come to me with that question. Test what it is I'm speaking to you. I want you guys to. You're my accountability. I wouldn't ask you to do that if I just stood up here and just wanted you guys to just chew on what I'm feeding you. This is my perspective. This isn't God speaking through me through his word. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. The, the Corinthians, the Greeks, they loved mirrors back then. I don't know if you guys knew that. I found that out in my studies. They loved mirrors. 
They had mirrors everywhere. And they were like polished, perfect mirrors and all that. But how many of you guys have ever walked through like weird, those weird like houses where they got the distorted mirrors? That's kind of like our faith right now. Like the mirror right now kind of just shows kind of a weird, like we see it, but we don't know exactly like, oh, that part, okay. This is what Paul's wanting to, to let us know. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. So there's a difference between looking at something just through a mirror or reflection as opposed to physically being in the presence of someone and seeing them face to face. Now I know only in part, then I, then I will know fully, even I, even if I have been fully known. So what Paul is sitting here once again, I only know in part, but he knows there'll be a day where he will fully know just as God fully knows him. God fully knows your heart. He fully knows your life, your motives. And he says that there will be a day where you too will fully know all of this just as he fully knows you. Guys, that is amazing news as a church and as Christians. And now faith, hope, and love abide. Think of a rope, church, with three strands. Faith, hope, and love. The strongest of those strands is what? Love. And the greatest of these is love. So what I want to do is I'm going to have you guys right now turn to 1 John. And after we read this, I'm going to give you guys some time for prayer. I'm going to give you guys some time that you can come up front to repent, to seek forgiveness from the Lord. We talked about this. We don't want to have a church with discord. We don't want to have a church with enmity with each other. Like We don't want to have that. I want you guys to have hearts that when you come to the gathering and this stuff is laid out and you leave to go back into the world to do the ministry that you've been called to do, ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you guys have hearts that have been refreshed and renewed. And I believe that a heart, once again, that practices repentance is a heart that will see a decline in what I call the recidivism of sin, which means you will sin less as you grow. That is your sanctification process. And that heart of flesh begins to grow more and more and more, and you become more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, right? You walk by the Spirit with the Spirit in you. So in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to go verses 7 through 21. And I want you guys, we just talked about love. Did we not? So we can't be ignorant to the word now. So I'm going to read to you guys what love is, how it looks for us as the Christian and the identity that it holds. Not worldly love. We use the word loose and fast. But now as I read through this, you guys have love and the proper identity and hermeneutic in your brain. So this passage, 7 through 21, should hold a whole nother meeting. And when I read it, and a whole nother definition. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. For God is what, church? God's love was revealed among us in this way. 
Here's the gospel for you. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. So keeping in mind what he's done for you, keeping in mind that you were dead in your sins and transgressions and he breathed life into you, knowing that he loved you first, that you were unworthy of that love. We are called to live out that love amongst one another, but it carries on. And remember here, John is calling these individuals beloved. He's addressing them as children of God. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. So church, when you have people come up to you of the world and say, I don't believe in God because I've never seen him before. Guess what? That's a lie. God lives in you. You show the world Jesus Christ. You show the world this kind of love. The world doesn't know love like this. The world avoids confrontation at every end, only just to meet confrontation at the end, right? When we sit there and try to be unified and let everyone do what everyone wants to do, eventually someone's going to run into conflict with someone's belief. Is that not what we're living in today? Sherry, I only can agree with you so much on so many topics before you and I hit a topic that we don't agree on. And then you could easily look at me and go, I thought you were my friend. Well, I thought you were my friend. Well, we agreed on 50 other things, but this one thing you're telling me I'm completely wrong? This is why the world needs Jesus Christ. There's no peace. There's no understanding of people's sin. They're, they're being a slave to that sin. So if people sit there and say that there is no God, that's false. There is a God. And once again, it is the creation that testifies for the existence of God. The trees, the birds, the weather, and you, the Christian. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. When we go back to 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see in there that it says love is not quickly angered. I think of the collaboration between the emotion of fear and anger. And I think about, as I said to you guys in the message this week, or the midweek message about this, the, the helmet of salvation. When you guys know that you are in right with God, when you know that you are his child, there should be no fear. There should be peace. Jesus promises this peace. And when you don't have fear, guess what also you easily start to see dissipate in your life? Anger. You don't get angry as much about things because those things just, you know, they used to matter when I was of the world, but I'm just simply now in it. I'm not as mad anymore because Jesus is my portion. He's all that I need. I have my brothers and sisters in faith and, and loving like this is difficult. It's hard. 
and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can do it. But you know what? I need my brothers and sisters. I need this gathering to come together and to encourage me to continue to do this because I can't do it by myself. This is why this is important. This is why we shouldn't forsake meeting together. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for, for fear has to do with punishment. Why do you guys not fear? Because you know you're not going to be judged or punished or damned because of your salvation. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in, in love. We love because he first loved us. Remember, guys, we're using this word love a lot, so I hope it's giving you guys an identity based on what we just preached about. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. How many of you are convicted? I'm convicted all over again just by reading it. So what I want to do is I'm going to close in prayer. I want to give you guys some time just in your pews. You can pray with one another. You can pray on your, your own. I want you guys to just come before the Lord and just ask for his for forgiveness. Because if I go back here in 1 John as well, in verse, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So once again, as I said a couple weeks ago, it doesn't matter, I guess, how you feel. We live in a world right now that operates a lot off of emotions and they take those emotions to mean truth. I ask that you guys come to him and ask for forgiveness with a repentful heart as I will do the same and asking him to just continue to show you his ways and to empower you through his Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just once again give you thanks for your word. Your word that just teaches us, it guides us, it, it discerns the things of our heart. We know that we could lie to everyone around us. We can express false motives all day by the things that we do, and they are just simply a cloak to the truth that you already know within us, Lord, that you know our hearts, that you understand where our motives lie when we do and operate things. And, and as a church, as we sit here today and we hear these words that are convicting, and a conviction that's caused or called to bring a sense of, of construction to us, sanctification to us, Lord. I pray that as we've taken these words in today and as we chew on them and as that conviction settles, that we understand and believe that it's the recognition of that conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, but also the forgiveness and the feeling of grace also comes from the Holy Spirit as well. So I pray that this church, when they come to you and they pray for forgiveness, they pray for repentance, that they understand and know it doesn't matter how they feel after they do it, that they understand and believe in your word is truth, that by coming to you and asking for forgiveness, that you are faithful in forgiving us, Lord. And that we continue to operate with hearts that repent. And when we continue to repent, we recognize how much we need you. And the more and more we do that, the more and more we actually become like you and sin less as we go on through this life. 
And I pray if that is a word of revelation to people sitting in here for the longest time, they've been sitting there just thinking that they are horrible people, that they are fallen individuals that really aren't deserving of your grace, Lord, that they see the truth and they see the understanding and the light. And that is that your grace reigns supreme over their sin, that love covers a multitude of sins. But they see and understand, too, that it doesn't give them permission to continue to sin, but that they recognize that sin in their life and they do away with it. And that they come to you every time that they do slip and fall. So Lord, once again, we give you thanks for this time of fellowship. We give you thanks for your word. Lord, be with these individuals as they come to you. They come in front of you. And they seek you out. And it is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. I'll give you guys a few minutes.